I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. There's an emerging line of ESG research and commentary that's beginning to pose some uncomfortable questions. Like, what if the outperformance over the past several years is over? How much of those returns were predicated on capital inflows, particularly those from passive investors? If we're talking flows, how appropriate are comparisons to the Nifty 50 in the 1970s? And more to the point, are we headed for an ESG bubble? Look, I get it. These are contentious questions. They throw a curveball at the narrative that ESG isn't a fad. It's not about short-term crowding effects. That instead, it's about a long-term structural rebalancing as ESG investors come to represent a bigger part of the market. But shouldn't we be asking these questions anyways? I think so. And if you know anything about me, you know I'm an absolute sucker for a good provocative piece of research on ESG, especially one that offers a counterpoint to what seems at times like an almost infallible, unquestioning faith in ESG investing. Which is why when I saw a recent article in the Financial Times on his research, I jumped at the opportunity to interview Abraham Louis. We talk about how investors may be currently mispricing ESG, what the implications are for identifying ESG risk premia, and why more rigorous approaches are absolutely essential to understanding ESG in the context of quantitative finance. Abraham is professor of finance at Edict Business School. He's also co-director of the Scientific Beta Advanced Factor and ESG Investing Research Chair. Welcome to the podcast, Abraham Louis. It's great to have you here and thanks so much for taking the time. It's great to be here and thank you for inviting me. I'm excited about this. Great. So, Abraham, we have a lot of great stuff to talk about. I'd like to start out with your new paper called Chasing the ESG Factor, which was featured most recently in the Financial Times. Why don't you start by giving a synopsis about the findings and some context? Yes. So I will start by the context and uh, give in a nutshell what do we find in this paper. So the motivation for this paper started for many... I, I'm working on ESG for many years. and. Uh, I found the, the need to work on this paper uh, three years ago, roughly speaking, where I saw uh, papers from very big shots in, in the academia, uh, professors from Harvard and uh, uh, other big schools in the US and the UK. And what impressed me is that the two studies uh, uh, were using exactly the same data and they reached exactly the opposite conclusion, which was one study said that Highly polluting firms outperform low, low, uh, firms which pollute less, while the other study reached exactly the opposite. And then I asked myself, how is it possible they use exactly the same data? And then I came to the point that, in fact, there is a deep difference in the methodologies that have been used by these two papers. And these methodologies are the methodologies that we encounter in academic studies. And as a matter of fact, I told myself that this may be also one source of the confusion in the literature on ESG. In fact, the empirical literature, now it's commonplace, everyone knows it, 
is very mixed. We don't know if ESG generate high performance or underperformance. Now you have many papers that say you can be ESG and outperform, and other papers who say you can be AG, but you have you will probably underperform. So I, I am not answering the whole debate. The very specific point we wanted to address in this paper is how the methodology used to build the ESG factor can lead to different outcomes. Okay, so this is the context of the paper. In this paper, roughly you have two main methodologies that are used in the academia. They are state of the art. What we wanted to, to, to check in this paper is how can we make these two methodologies consistent between each other? And is there one which dominate the other? Okay, and we wanted to apply it in the ESG factor case. Why? Because the problem is that when you use the two methodologies, and if you believe that ESG rating matters for the factor return, you cannot compare the methodology unless you are guaranteed that the two portfolios that you're comparing have the same ESG rating. Okay, so that was the, the, the purpose of this paper was to take these two methodologies to adapt them such that they measure the return premium on the factor which has exactly the same rating in both cases, and then say one, one may be better than the other. And as a matter of fact, we found that one is better than the other for a very simple reason, because one methodology is able in a very flexible and simple way to account for other sources of difference in return between stocks beyond ESG. Our findings are the following. With the methodology, we are able to compute an ESG premium on a monthly basis, not something which is based on 20 years of data, which is likely to smooth out a lot of very important variation in time. Here, our factor premium is measured every month. Once we measure the factor premium every month, we extracted the outperformance of the, of the factor. Outperformance of the factor while controlling for other sources of risk, which we know are important, like size, value, of profitability, momentum, etc. And we found a very interesting pattern into the outperformance of the ESG factor. The ESG factor is long, high ESG stocks and short, low ESG stocks. And what we found is that this factor has, a, has had an alpha at the beginning of our sample in the beginning of 2000, which was positive and economically important. And this alpha steadily decreased until nowadays our sample ends in 2020, it became negative. I want to stop you there because I want to dig into the methodology and mechanics around this work, which I think is is incredibly important. But I, I, I kind of want to stop you there and jump ahead. And I want to ask you this big picture question, which is, what are the implications for ESG investors coming out of this paper? I guess another way of saying it is, what does this say about, in your mind, the level of sophistication of ESG investors relative to value, growth, or momentum style investors? Uh, I think it's the same level of, of sophistication. Here is our point. The, in, we can say the point in a very simple word. If you think of factors, Suppose you have a firm which, is, which has 
an ESG rating of 10. And another firm which has an ESG rating of 1. Okay? The ESG factor will go long the 10 and short the 1. Okay? Now, suppose these two stocks, now the rating is 4 and 6. ESG factor, as they have been rated, uh, built so far, they will go long the 6 and short the 4. And, and short the 4. What we are saying is that this may not be the right way to go. We pretend that the spread in the rating is important. Why? Because it's likely to drive the premium. When the spread is 1 to 10 and when the spread is 4 to 6, you cannot expect the same premium from ESG in both cases. The standard approach to be factors, that is long short, they use the characteristic in general and the ESG rating, if it is the ESG rating factor, they use the ESG rating as an ordinal variable. You take ESG, you order, you short, you long the high, and you short the low. What we are saying is no, you should take seriously the level of the rating itself. That is, you need to adjust your investment into the high ESG and low ESG depending on the spread between the two ratings. That's the whole point of the paper. And this is, and I think it's very intuitive. It's like value stocks, okay? 20 years ago, the spread in the va book value to equity, uh, to the market value was, let's say, uh, five, six in long terms uh, between value and growth stocks. And this spread decreased to be, I don't know, one or two. So the question is, should we maintain the same factor or should we adjust the investment in each leg of the factor as a function of the level of the spread. And that's our point. Let me let me dig into this because, I mean, it's, it's a pretty powerful assertion and effectively, in my mind, the holy grail of ESG right, right now, which is to say, does ESG as a quantifiable factor exist? When I look at the findings from third-party data providers and, and, and others, I, I often find that what is purported to be an ESG factor is nothing more than a sloppy amalgam of a lot of other common risk factors. I mean, namely quality, size, low vol, et cetera. It sort of runs into this sort of definitional kind of circularity problem, which is we're calling something ESG. The reality is it's just a sloppy combination of other risk factors. So it gets to this point of like, what are we really measuring? So I kind of want to press you on this point of how uncorrelated, how orthogonal is the ESG fact that you have produced? Fantastic question. That's also one strength of the methodology. The ESG factor that we build has an exposure to the size, which is zero, an exposure to value, which is zero, an exposure to momentum, which is zero. So our ESG factor is a pure play. That is our portfolio. The weight of each stock in our ESG factor are such that the exposure of this factor to the size characteristic, we didn't take 200 of characteristics, okay? We took four or five, just the common one, but Obviously, you can, you can extend as you want, given some uh, technical problems. But that's the whole point, that our ESG factor has no exposure to this ESG characteristic, to, to the other characteristics. Hence, it's a pure ESG factor. 
So where do you think, where do you see this leading towards? I mean, if the co-movement relative to other common risk factors isn't there, how do you sort of continue to evolve this? Because one thing, just from a practical point of view for practitioners, when we talk about performance attribution or risk exposure, you don't find these kinds of things within your traditional Brinson attribution analysis, right? You sort of look at performance attribution alongside industry, region, or stock attribution, but there is nothing that I've at least seen commercially available that sort of points to an orthogonal ESG factor. First of all, our factor is unlikely to be orthogonal to the factor that you're citing. Because the factor that you're citing are the long short ones. And our point is to say that these long short factors, maybe they don't capture what they are supposed to capture. That's one. Okay? Secondly, our contribution is to say the following. People for the last decade or 20 years or two or three decades, and maybe the academia uh, is guilty for having created this kind of perception. They think of factor as a free lunch. Okay? You buy a small stock, you sell big stocks, you get the factor premium. It's like an arbitrage. Risk premium. Exactly. It's a risk premium, but people... Don't understand that this risk premium. What does it mean a risk premium? You are taking risk. It may be there. It may not be there in terms of realization. Okay? No, that's one. Here, it's completely different because, and that's, there is, this is where the theory was super helpful to us. What we are saying is that we cannot even tell you whether high ESG should outperform low ESG or the reverse. Why? Because we have two opposites mechanisms that are at play. On the one hand, if people value ESG, they are willing to pay more, given that the cash flows take time for, it takes time for them to change. If they pay more, they will get less return. Okay? So preference for ESG will generate, if you want, a negative alpha. However, when there is a high, uh, uh, a high sentiment toward ESG, people start buying like crazy ESG stock, in the transition between now that the sentiment is high and people construct their portfolio, the prices will increase. So on the one hand, people like ESG, they are willing to compromise uh, uh, financial performance, hence negative alpha. On the other hand, there is a buzz around ESG, positive shock to the demand for ESG, hence positive alpha, negative versus positive. You will have the mixed evidence which is exactly what the whole academic literature documented. I guess this is the most interesting sort of provocative question out that. I mean, it would seem to sort of point to the fact that ESG investors are relatively, and this is a generalization, but unsophisticated. I, they're buying high, not buying low. And they're sort of directed by their preferences, obviously for a lot of different reasons, you know, in terms of norm, normative screening, et cetera. But that seems to be directing the negative return element. Yes. So, uh, no, the positive return, because if there is a high demand, high, uh, the prices go, go up. So those who are selling now, they will generate a really positive return. So I would say, if you say that ESG investors are unsophisticated, I would like to add that they are consistent. Why? Because in fact, if on average, they will, be, they will uh, understand that there may be a cost to buying these stocks high and they still buy them, for me, that's the proof that these guys are really, really uh, uh, looking for an impact. 
Because in fact, when you talk about financial performance about sustainable investing, you are perfectly hypocrite. Okay, you are, not, you are not consistent. Why? Because if you want to do sustainable investing, by definition, the financial performance should not be what you care about. You care about a positive impact on the planet. It may be a cost, yes, that's the cost you are going to incur. So for me, if you describe these uh, investors as unsophisticated because they pay high, I would like to add that they are, they are also consistent because they know what they are looking after. And if they lose money, then they are ready and, pre ready and prepared to lose the money. So they may be not that unsophisticated than one may think. Mm, that's actually a really good point. You know, I had this conversation with Cam Harvey earlier about that. And I guess his contention is that these capital flows into ESG stocks are nothing more than crowding effects, short-term flows that would ultimately unwind. And I guess I I'm wondering from your perspective, is there a counter argument to say that actually it's not necessarily short-term crowding effects and short-term capital flows. It is in fact a longer-term structural rebalancing of the market as more called it quote ESG investors become a bigger portion of the market overall. Well, I think it's it's a very tough question. But what I can tell you is that what bothers me in this flow of funds to DSC investing, and this is maybe where the financial industry has maybe to come up with something more convincing. What bothers me is the following: people want to invest in sustainable companies, okay, companies that are high rated in ESG, they undertake, you know, uh, uh, projects that uh, are uh, environmental friendly, etc., etc. But what bothers me is that the whole uh, industry is marketing as we have a sustainable fund, we have a sustainable ETF, etc. Why? When you look at the data, you see that, in fact, it's not that trivial to rank a firm as sustainable or irresponsible. Okay, and for me, this is a kind of source of irresponsibility from the financial industry to tell that they are doing something, and it's not clear at all that that's exactly what they are doing. And because investors are putting their money there, so there is a problem, there is a paradox, because either the investors are not aware of the very large disagreement among uh, data vendors uh, about ESG rating, or they are aware and then they count maybe too much on the financial industry to make their mind on which data vendor is correct and therefore invest the portfolio. So for me, the deepest problem right now is not exactly... You see that people, when you tell them, you, 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 do you want to, be, uh, uh, to put some money in social responsibility? Everyone is here, everyone say yes. So there is good faith on the part of the investor, which is very good. It's a, it's a very good signal. Uh, as to the humanity, broadly speaking. But for me, the big problem is that so far, we lack good data, okay? Because even exposed, you, have, you don't have a way to check whether the manager saying, I, am in, I have a super uh, responsible portfolio, you don't have a way to check it because the, 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 the asset manager will always find a data source or call for an opaque massaging of the data internally such that she or he justified that the portfolio was really responsible, at least at the inception of the strategy. So how do you reconcile two very different approaches to solving you know, the question around ESG, which is to say, from a quantitative finance perspective, you were looking top down, trying to identify 
and define an ESG factor across markets, industries, uh, regions, right? And, and sort of that is, it runs counter very much against the discretionary bottom-up fundamental approach, which is, you know, not about the breadth of a portfolio. It's about depth. It's about a concentrated portfolio. It tends to be anecdotally driven. It tends to be sort of narrated around case studies. It tends to be data-driven, but in a much more personal storytelling way. And I guess what I'm saying is, or, or asking is, how, how can those two approaches, this top-down approach that, you know, that you're following and this bottom-up approach coexist? Uh, I think, uh, uh, thank you for this very, very important question. So I think that there is room for the, the two approaches today because the ESG investing didn't reach maturity. But I think that when we will reach maturity, the, the ESG factor will be an irrelevant question because this is not what investors are after. And instead of saying, uh, here is the ESG factor, either you outperform or you underperform, I think it is the, the wrongest question that we can ask about ESG. I think we should reach, for me, okay? We can, we, we, this two, because we are in a transition, so the financial performance is still a concern for average investors, which is completely legitimate, okay? But in my view, we will reach, legit, we will reach maturity whenever it will be possible to talk about ESG investing and ESG portfolios whenever we will be able to have metrics which have not, nothing to do with, with, with financial performance. They have to do with how much water you helped to, uh, to, to clean, uh, how much emission, uh, by how much you reduce the emissions, etc. Et That's for me uh, the, the proof that we will have reached the maturity in terms of ESG investing, not with financial indicators. But what ESG is about, that is indicators of how good we have done with the environment by reducing emissions or uh, 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 helping the uh, countries which have problems with waters or whatever, or helping countries which have problems with the, the labor of, uh, of child, etc. I think we should reach the stage where a portfolio will have clear metrics which are not financial, on the E, on the S, and on the on the G. Okay, unless, unless we will be there. Okay, there will always be room for these papers. Who will say uh, did ESG outperform or underperform? For me, that's the wrong question. And what you're saying when you say that these people seems seem unsophisticated because they pay high, maybe the other way around is to say these people they don't care about financial performance. They are willing to buy high because they know their investment will help the planet and they're willing to incur the cost. So I hope that we will reach a situation in the medium term, the long term, I don't know, where the financial performance will no longer be a criterion or an indicator that will be used when building ESG factors. And this will call for, you know, uh, I don't remember who said this, maybe it's uh, President Mac Macron or uh, the Minister, Minister of Economy in France, but someone says that uh, probably more than 50% of the jobs in 10 years are, are not, does, do not exist today, okay? And I will say the asset management industry, okay, in the same way that we had equity analysts which were able to take the balance sheet uh, this, and other uh, accounting documents 
and from there to generate indicators which will help you know pick up uh, uh, stocks or pick up an industry or whatever i think we will need uh, this kind of people much more sophisticated not to uh, look at the rating of some company itself but we will need these people who will exist within the asset management industry and they will be able to do a fundamental analysis but not the way we knew it so far that is based on balance sheet financial ratios blah 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 but rather based you know on esg component of the firm activity okay and this is super okay it means that there is a there are additional competencies that financial people investing on the stock market should acquire in the coming years and you know i am a teacher so it's also important for me to try to forecast what will be the next jobs in five to ten years to adapt the programs uh, uh, largely before uh, the students come onto the market. This this is a really refreshing uh, discussion. I, I guess so. So I I agree with you that that perhaps unsophisticated is the wrong word, but but enlightened might be a better description. But what I do wonder is where does ESG stand relative to the rest of quantitative finance? Is it an outlier, an anomaly in the sense of conventional quantitative finance tools? So if I were an allocator, as an example, and I had allocated into a large cap Japan value fund, and I met with the investment team, the first part of that meeting would be looking at the returns and those would be framed around, as you would expect, Japan large cap value. You know, if if suddenly the discussion veered towards uh, U.S. small cap growth, I'd probably redeem, right? I mean, they were sort of uh, uh, outside their mandate. How do you have that kind of discussion in the ESG world, or do you think that that discussion doesn't necessarily take place? Because you know that your work around this ESG factor would really support that discussion. You know, towards a common understanding of of how to allocate to this kind of risk in the context of an allocator's overall risk budget? Thank you very much for this question. In fact, here is the point. Let's take one step back, okay? So today, we tend to believe that uh, uh, the bus for ESG is here and has been here for every, for, forever, okay? But in fact, when you look at the data, that's a recent bus, two, three, four years. And it's very interesting that this bus came uh, exactly, it's unbelievable. I am acad- an academic, so you may think I'm not objective, but it's unbelievable how this bus came exactly with the burgeoning of an interesting literature in the academia. Let me be precise. Since the, during the last five years, there has been a lot of papers that have been published in the academia saying, hey, maybe the factors disappear. In fact, uh, when we look at size, value, etc., it seems there are, there are no more anomalies because we are unable to show that in the rest, in the last decade, for example, small outperformed big, value outperformed growth, etc., etc. So, if these factors are disappearing, then what can the, the, the asset management industry do to justify the salary? One way is to move to the Passive stuff, ETFs. Okay? But in ETFs, the, it's the, the race to the lowest cost. So hence, less revenue to the asset management industry. So if in the asset management industry, you want still to do something which looks active, 
but reducing the burden of having to show that you outperform. ESG is dreamful. What is what 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 is the thing that you can think about which is simpler than checking the box? I have high ESG stock. If you have a high ESG stock, it seems like it, it forgives you for whatever performance you do in the future. So, as an investor, we need to be careful because if the asset management industry is pushing for the ESG buzz to attract fund flows and say, well, look, I know how to, to pick up high ESG stocks, etc., but it's only a way to uh, distract from the fact that the asset management industry is unable to generate abnormal performance, we as investors, uh, broadly speaking, we should be very careful to put the bar higher for the asset management industry. True that as an ESG investor, I care less about financial performance. I am willing to compromise, but I want tangible evidence that my portfolio is having an impact. So, because you use a rating in a rating company, that's fine. But maybe at some point, as as uh, as time passes, maybe investors will require much more sophistication on the part of the asset managers to convince that they are really doing fundamental analysis to pick up a portfolio, which in fine will have a real impact on the economy. I want to pick up on one thing. You sort of mentioned passive investing. And I'm wondering, within the context of the paper, to what degree did the rise of passive ESG strategies, how have they skewed your findings? You know, it seems like ETFs in particular have experienced the most pronounced inflows over the last several years and influenced the return expectations for ESG. You know, is there an argument to say that passive approaches have methodologically, this might not be fair, but dumbed down ESG is a style factor by simply applying third-party ordinal ratings, top quartile or quintile, at face value and calling it a day? Yes, definitely. I guess that uh, the passive investing, uh, because it's very likely that the passive investing, uh, as we said, there is a lot of disagreement. So if these passive investors are based on some data vendors, okay, so the fund flow mechanically to the ESG flow to the, to the companies, and I, I completely agree with you, that this may have, you know, uh, accelerated the process. This is exactly where our paper is interesting. I'm not saying that uh, the results are uh, immune of any critique or whatever. It's an empirical work, okay? So there is uh, a lot of more to do, etc. But it's very interesting that uh, uh, the, the, the negative alpha zone already showed up in the last one or two years, okay? That is, this, this ESG, ESG flows... Uh, ETF flows, sorry, have probably accelerated the transmission of the buzz for ESG into the market prices. And now we are kind of reaching some kind of maturity. And now that we are at maturity, then people have to think there is no free lunch in life. Okay? If there is no free lunch, if you want to be responsible and you have a highly responsible firm, it's very likely to come at the cost. Okay? What is the cost? The cost is probably that you will get lower return. It's not a fatality. Because remember, as an, as an investor, you are buying a stock. A stock has two components, a cash flow and a discount rate. The discount rate means that investors are requiring less return on the company because the company is responsible. However, 
if the, suppose the company is investing into clean production processes and the company is able to speed up the adaptation of the new technology by the company itself to, to produce sufficiently to, to get to the break-even point and therefore start getting a rent from the fact that the company is using a clean technology. If the company is able to transform quickly all the investment done into the technology to be responsible into cash flows, this may offset the negative alpha for the investors. Because on the one hand, they require a lower return, everything else equal. But if the company gives them like kind of a bonus by generating higher cash flow, then, then bingo, there may be no cost to being ESG. Okay? But this takes time. You understand that it takes time when you adapt a new, a new technology, it takes time until you start getting some rents from this new, new technology. Now, let alone that there is another issue which you may be, you should be aware of. When you look at the data, what you see is that in general, high ESG goes hand by hand with big companies. Big companies are companies which are well-established companies, okay? And these companies, it's very unlikely that they will change their technology or the way of producing in the next one, two or three years. Why? Because investment takes time. And if they invested in the last five years, they would like 10 or 15 years to get back their money. So they are not going to change their technology very quickly. So think about it. Why I believe that the discount rate effect is likely to be the dominating one and therefore ESG investors are likely to uh, incur uh, a negative alpha, it's because if everyone goes to high ESG stocks, in fact, they go to big firms. And this high ESG stock of big firms, you will be surprised to know that when you, you go to disaggregated data, these companies have high ESG stock score but when you disentangle the score between strength and concerns, you will be surprised that they rank high both in strength and concerns. So that is, they have high concerns. I am a company which, which uh, 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 produce cars. By construction, I am a polluting company. So, and by construction, it will take me 30 years to change my production process. What should they do? Sit down and be treated as the less uh, responsible firm? No, I can control the strength. So this will be the company which in general will donate a lot, participate, give grants, participate to things that will increase their strength rating. Strength rating will be high. They will offset the concern and the raters will classify this company as high ESG. But if you look a bit, you will see that they are high ESG because they invest a lot in strength to offset high concerns. Okay, so to come back to my point, an investor uh, 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 investing in high ESG firms is likely to incur a negative alpha. What can attenuate this negative alpha? One thing is what we have seen in the last two, three, five years. That is an unexpected shock a positive shock to the demand for high ESG stocks. Another thing that can offset this negative alpha and which may, may, may make us see 
that high ESG firms still deliver in terms of financial performance is that we have an unexpected positive shock to the cash flows of this firm. I mean, speaking of unexpected shocks, I mean, how do you think about exogenous factors around this model? I know it's, I don't think it's something that you've specifically talked about in the paper, but I, I, regulation clearly is playing a major role um, in terms of directing capital flows and specifically the uh, EU sustainable finance disclosure regulation or SFDR uh, kind of does two specific things. It, it provides safeguards against greenwashing, but it also in the most explicit way that I've ever seen in sort of my working life steers capital towards sustainable investments as defined by the EU taxonomy and away from unsustainable investments. With the SFDR having just launched this past March, why wouldn't we see sustained capital inflows into ESG and impact products, which would, I would imagine, perpetuate or even add to the ESG premium? I think that you are giving too much credibility to the EU taxonomy. I, I give you a very personal uh, perspective. If you give box to check to company to be labeled sustainable, you can be sure that in five years, 99% of the company will be sustainable. Okay? 99%. So think about rating in the fixed income market. Something incredible. If you take two free raters of a bond issue, the correlation between the rating is 0, 90, 90%, 95%. How come it's so high, the correlation? Because the companies understood the game, okay? And now they, they play the game. If they play the game, you will see that you will get exactly the rating that you want and all the raters will give. So I'm not sure that the EU taxonomy is really the panacea. So I, I, I don't know. It's not, a, I, I'm not sure. That's it. I, I am less enthusiastic than, than all of those who are, who are saying, well, they, they will solve greenwashing, etc. I'm not sure because it's an easy way for firms uh, to uh, to check the box. Now, uh, think about it. Without the taxonomy, that is, even though we know that in, in reality, we don't know what's the ESG level of an arbitrary firm. We don't know. And still you see tons of money flowing into the asset management. So will the EU taxonomy change the game or create a shift upward? I don't know. That's an open question. I'm not sure, okay? I think that uh, whoever wanted to shift the funds toward ESG, we, we are likely to be at the end of the cycle or we don't have that much time left until everyone wanted to move to ESG has moved. So these people, they are not going to reallocate their portfolio on a daily basis, right? Even though uh, the ESG ratings come up, uh, you know, on a regular flow, okay? So... I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the EU taxonomy will be something that will reshape the market and, uh, you know, create uh, uh, some uh, font flows toward... Uh, see what happened with Morningstar. When Morningstar, you know, changed the rating to ADSG, immediately we saw a huge font flow because Morningstar had, you know, some credibility. And there was a paper who just came up one or two years ago and has shown that when they, create, they uh, adjusted the rating uh, with the ESG uh, of funds, there has been a large fund flows into funds which are highly rated in terms of ESG. But 
But I think the deepest problem right now, okay, is not to know if there is a factor or there is no factor. It's very likely that we will never find an ESG factor because to find a factor, we should be sure of the direction of the premium of the factor. So as an average, we can document this empirically. Why? By construction, the SG factor, we don't know if the premium will be positive or negative because we have this opposite effect. On the one hand, the, the negative alpha due to the willingness to compromise financial performance. And on the other hand, the positive alpha due to the changing test for ESG. So in fact, you don't know. For value of growth, for years, you knew that value will dominate. So when you look at the value factor, you should find a positive premium for the value factor. If you find a negative premium, you have a problem. For ESG factor, you don't know, okay? Because if you are in a period where the sentiment is very high, then it may be that the ESG factor is delivering like crazy. But if you are in a period, normal time period, the ESG factor can have a negative alpha, as theory says that in normal times, the alpha should be negative. I want to press you a little more on this specifically because, I mean, one of, one of the interesting comments within the paper is um, you really sort of dissect the E, S, and G. And even within E, you sort of concede that the carbon premium, not the E premium, the environmental premium, is a bit more pronounced. And I think one of the recent and controversial side effects of all this regulation and legislation and even frameworks like the TCFD is that certain asset light, non-carbon intensive sectors, namely technology, big tech, emerge as huge beneficiaries of asset flows just from a screening perspective. Um, how, how do you think that this is skewing the returns. We're still in the fairly early phase of all this regulation. So why wouldn't it continue to skew and perpetuate returns towards firms that are less carbon intensive? Hello. Uh, first of all, I don't know. That's uh, an, uh, an operator question. And we will see. I, I don't know exactly what, what can happen in the future. But let me please uh, tell you the following. Think about uh, a, a tech company. Okay. So what you're saying is that tech companies are perceived as the, uh, low carbon intensive. I'm not sure. Think about the huge uh, mainframes used to collect the data uh, by uh, companies. I don't want to cite any, any one of the companies, but all these companies, they are managing a cloud. A cloud is not on the, on the air, right? For the cloud, you need to consume a lot of electricity, not like mining the Bitcoin. But you are using a lot of electricity to buy. You have to use a computer. You have to produce the computer. So I'm not sure that in fine, these companies which look like they are less carbon intensive are so less carbon intensive. Let me give you a different perspective on this. There is another paper that I have been working on. And what we have seen is that, in fact, what the, the, the flows to, to the tech companies may have a completely different storytelling, which has nothing to do with ESG. It can have to do with the safe asset haven. In fact, and this is another paper, in another paper that uh, I've been working on, we asked the question, during extreme weather events, okay, what, 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 what companies, what industry emerge as a safe haven? And guess what? It's the tech company. So the tech stocks, they have the same property as treasury bills from the US or fiat money. Okay? So you see, it's complicated. It has nothing to do with ESG. 
Okay? And this is the result that we have been finding on 20 years, not only the last five years that uh, is. So, to sum up, I understand the buzz to our text company. I'm not sure that the buzz is because people believe they are less carbon intensive. Personally, I don't believe at all that they are less carbon intensive because if you add up all the electricity use and buildings and the uh, transportation of the product that they sell, etc., I, I, I'm not sure they will be far from other uh, well-known uh, emitting uh, industry. Okay, and this is where, for example, scope one, scope two, scope three. That's a project that has to be continued and made much more, you know, uh, efficient in measuring the emissions from the, the companies on the whole value chain of the company, not only the direct ones. And as you know, scope three, which is a broad measure of emission, it's the less, uh, it's, it's the one measured with the less precision. Okay. And because it is measured with the less precision, Companies belonging to, belonging to the tech industry will benefit from this, let's say, confusion around the right level of emission attached to the, to the whole chain value. Okay, so this is about the tech story that you talked about. Broadly speaking, what about continuing fund flows toward ESG? Well, we are there for the one or two year, the, the, the one or two less years. We have been there really intensively. Okay. We see a steep increase to this fund. Uh, whether it's a permanent uh, uh, pattern, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. At some point, you know, those who wanted to reallocate, they will have reallocated, and that's it. I wanted to finish up with this sort of question about how you see, let's call it the chase for the ESG factor evolving from here. You know, it, se- it seems to me, at least as a practitioner, that there are four, there might be more kind of... Uh, uh, dominant, you know, prevalent approaches to to tackling this problem. I mean, the first is you take ratings from third-party data providers, you regress out common risk factors, and you sort of look at the residual. And more often than not, there's just not enough residual in there to do anything with it. The second one is, uh, you know, uh, many people are sort of scraping using natural language processing or other tools you know, sort of unstructured data, even in the ESG space and trying to kind of divine something out of all that noise. I think the problem is it it's less about producing an ESG factor and more about a sentiment indicator, which by the way, decays really quickly. It's just hard to sort of use that unless you're a very short-term uh, uh, investor, at least from my view, maybe I, I might be wrong. The, the third is you, know, you attack this from a very theoretic kind of academic Markovian perspective. You talk about the efficient frontier, um, uh, but that's very conceptual. And then the fourth is proprietary approaches of which we're seeing more, which is to say, look, let's take the data from these third-party data providers. Let's throw out the ratings and let's reconstitute them. Let's retrain the data. Let's recondition them, kind of kick out all these biases and sort of statistical anomalies. What's your view? I mean, how do you see this evolving? So, in fact, I like very much your fourth approach. Okay. My hope is that my paper will be outdated and completely useless in three to four, four years. In fact, what happened is that ESG came up in the last three, four years. But I've been working on corporate social responsibility for more than 10 years. Okay. But then the buzz for ESG, you know, showed up, you know, in the recent years. And then what people, that's the human being, right? People just use the tools 
that they have to analyze this new issue, which is ESG. And I thought, I think that it is a wrong direction. Okay? I think it's a wrong direction. Why? Because that's not the point. The point of ESG is not to ger- generate more or less financial performance. That's not the point. So, which means that while in my factor I control because everyone will ask to control for size, value, blah, 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 I would love to see a paper on the ESG factor where you don't have at all native size, no value, nothing. You have other metrics which are really related to ESG. The level of the emissions, uh, the, dis- the, the, the discrimination by the company, the gender gap in the company, uh, the, the, the human rights within the, within the country where the company has its uh, headquarters, etc. So I'd love to see uh, 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 people providing data on these characteristics of the companies, but not characteristics in the way uh, academics and practitioners are understanding them today, that is profitability, etc. By the way, when you look at characteristics, most of them, the very large majority, are based on accounting documents. Okay? So, and, 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 and unfortunately, we don't have yet this information related really to ESG published on a mandatory basis by the firms. And my hope is that it becomes the case. And I prefer that it is on a voluntary basis by the company to, to, to publish all the variables which will really help get a sense of where the company is standing in terms of ESG. And this will probably help the investors, you know, direct the money toward these companies or at least the projects undertaken by these companies. Perfect. Well, that's a, it's a really good way to end this. So it's been fascinating to talk about your latest paper, Chasing the ESG Factor, and how investors may be mispricing ESG and what the implications are for identifying ESG risk premia and why more rigorous approaches are absolutely essential to understanding ESG in the context of quantitative finance. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Abraham Louis, professor of finance at Edic Business School. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Abraham. Thank you very much, Jason, for the opportunity to discuss these important issues. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell.com at man.com.